This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Each week on our show, you'll find a new deep dive into a case. And you can join my co-host, Alicia Jenkins, as we discuss the case together. We created this show to give victim stories exposure, to focus on the victims and make these cases about them. And by doing that, we can expose the monsters lurking all around us. part two of Sharika Adams' murder, so if you haven't listened to part one, you're going to be really confused. Head back one episode and listen to part one. With that, are you ready to jump back into this case? Okay, so we left off in part one with Sandra going up to Ray and saying that she knows that he did this to her daughter. But somehow Ray's able to talk her down and Sandra agrees to show him to the NICU where Chancellor is. Maybe he's like trying to schmooze her and he's telling her he had nothing to do with it. I'm not sure why she kind of calms down from there. For a moment, she might question if her emotions were just high. She'll wait for the investigation to do its job. And when they reach Chancellor, the little boy has tubes hooked up to his tiny body, but the family was able to hold him. So Sandra's like, go ahead, hold your son. But he says, no thanks, I'll actually just go ahead and take a picture of him because this might be the last time I ever get to see him. So then her heart drops because in her mind, this confirms what she had already suspected, that Ray was responsible for Chancellor's predicament and for her daughter's suffering. She had already had an icky feeling while walking Ray to the NICU because he had been on the phone with his agent and Sandra wondered if he was trying to get a story out there. It didn't seem like first priority in that moment, but she held her tongue. And even though Chancellor looks exactly like his dad, Ray will later take a DNA test to confirm that this baby is his, which like, okay, fair, but we know he was just doing that as like one last chance to disconnect himself from this child. The detectives have been able to ask Ray some questions there at the hospital. They even got him to agree to letting them look through his cell phone, and he consented to a search of his vehicle where no physical evidence was found tying him to this crime, which this makes sense once they discover the details. But following their chats at the hospital, Ray hires defense attorney George Lauren, and by the end of the day, he puts a halt on any further interviews with Ray. So detectives make a request for Ray's phone records and they find a bit of suspicious activity. After Ray and Sharika leave the movies and are headed then back to his house, house, they get in the separate cars and then they're driving to her house. Ray is on the phone with Sharika, but he ends that call to make two other phone calls. These calls will tie back to two of the three men that were there in the car that ambushed Sharika. One of those phone numbers would tie back to a motel where a man named Van Brett Watkins is found about nine days after the shooting. The other phone number would tie back to Michael Kennedy. So during this time, she's still alive. And because she stays alive for about another month on ECMO and everything. So all the investigations going on while she's still in the hospital alive, but she's unable to communicate. Yes. 
Yeah. So by this time, she's like in the medically induced coma, but she is still alive. So they're investigating it and they end up making arrests before she passes away. So, yeah, but she's not able to communicate or anything. They've kind of gotten all they could out of her so far. Once both of those men, Michael and Van Brett, um, are brought in for questioning, they quickly turn on Ray, telling detectives that he was the mastermind of this entire plan. Three men, along with Ray Carruth, are arrested following the shooting. But Ray makes bail under the premise that he is to report to police if Sharika or Chancellor die. But when Sharika passes on December 14th, he does the opposite. He actually flees and he tries to head to his home state of California and he's captured in Tennessee. Police had found him hiding inside of the trunk of his car in a motel parking lot. He had almost $4,000 cash with him, a cell phone, and a container he was using to go pee in. <laughs> oh boy. Was he by himself? No. He actually was not by himself. He had fled with that female friend from the hospital, the massager. So was she keeping an eye on him in the trunk? I don't know if she was. I'm assuming she was like in the car and then he was in the trunk. I don't know. Like, so was she driving him and he was in the trunk the whole time? Probably. Why else would you need a container to pee in? Unless you're like not just not trying not to go inside anywhere. Super weird. Who's this lady? Yeah, I don't know. They don't say. They just keep saying a female friend. It's like, obviously, some girl he was dating or seeing. So we never find out. So she had to have known that he was the one that did it because he was hiding in the trunk. Yeah. Well, there is one girl who will see testifies that he admitted. It, they call her, her his ex-girlfriend. And she testifies that he admitted to what happened. So is that the girl? I don't know. Anyway, he's brought back to North Carolina and his charges are now for murder. Eventually, Ray ends up with defense attorney David Rudolph, who actually defended the writer Michael Peterson. Do you know who that is? Yeah, the writer, the author that killed his wife down the stairs. The man at the center of the staircase, if you haven't seen that documentary. But I always think it's interesting to see, like these attorneys that do multiple cases the one that has been like gotten me the most lately is john thomas who's been defending lori lori daybell but he also defended helped defend christopher tapp from our very first episode and he like made like that best quote where he's like we're coming to find you and i like loved him in that episode so much and then i'm like no how do you defend lori but it's like their job I don't know. It, I think defense attorneys, I kind of feel for them because it would be hard. Like, it's your job. So this guy, David Rudolph, he's connected to both of them. So the first suspect brought in was Michael Kennedy. He was interviewed by Detective Tony Rice, and he tells Tony that Ray had been talking about killing Sharika for months by the time a plan actually comes together. He says that Ray was always telling him that Sharika was a hoe and that he couldn't have a baby with a stripper. So he can go to the strip club, but he cannot be with someone who works at a strip club. On the night that Ray is getting ready to take Sharika out to the movies, he had called Michael just a few hours before and he's like, what are you doing? Do you have a car you can drive tonight? I need you to come over to my house. 
And Michael knows what Ray is trying to plan, but he's hanging out with his best friend, Stanley Abraham. So he brings Stanley over to Ray's with him. Van Brett Watkins also meets the men there. However, he is using an alias. So Van Brett Watkins is calling himself William, which is actually his brother's name. So none of them even know his real name, like at that time. And then there's Stanley. He's just brought along with Michael, and he's just in awe of being in this famous NFL player's home. He's sort of oblivious to what's going down. He's giving himself a tour of the home and calling different friends to tell them where he's at. And at this time, Ray is hatching out a plan to murder his girlfriend with Van Brett Watkins and Michael Kennedy. The men are still at Ray's home when Sharika shows up for the date, and she starts to feel weird about the whole situation. She actually called her mom and she told her that she's not sure why she's even here because Ray has all these people at his house and he's downstairs on the phone and he's being really secretive. Sharika tells Sandra that she thinks he's on the phone with another woman. And Sandra is like, hey, like screw him. Tell him you're not going to the movies and that you had to get up early for work. So you're coming home. But right then she hears Ray in the background of the phone call. He's saying that they're just headed out right now. So Sharika ends the call with her mom, and that's the last conversation they would ever have. Michael Kennedy had driven his Nissan Maxima, and once Ray leaves with Sharika to the movies, the three men go off to buy the gun that they would use to ambush her. They knew someone on the streets who was selling a gun, and the agreement was that Ray would pay $3,000 upfront for the murder and that he would pay another $3,000 once it was complete. Through an ATM, though, he was only able to get $300 in the moment, and this is the money they used to purchase the gun for $100. Michael Kennedy was a crack cocaine dealer on the streets of Charlotte where he was known as Little Man. He's 23 years old at this time, and he had met Ray at a car shop in February of 1999. The two were not close friends, but they would talk here and there. Van Brett Watkins was the head of security at a strip club during the summer of 1999. And I'm not sure if this is like the same strip club where Sharika had worked, but she actually hadn't worked there since finding out she was pregnant. So by the summer of 1999, she wasn't working at the club anyway. But this is where Ray and him meet. Van Brett is a big dude. He's six foot three and about 280 pounds. And he goes by the nickname New York because he is from New York. And like I said, he's using the alias William instead of his real name. So after meeting at the strip club, Van Brett starts doing odd jobs for Ray to make money, like washing his cars. And only a few weeks after starting these odd jobs, Ray makes his request for quite a different type of job. He calls up Van Brett and asks him to meet him in a Walmart parking lot. He says that when Ray first approached him in June of 1999, Ray asked how much it would cost to beat a girl up and make her abort her baby. But Van Brett Watkins says, I don't beat up a girl, I kill people. So both just bad dudes. Van Brett Watkins had already served time in prison and he says that he has killed people before. He will later claim that police don't even know the extent of his criminal past and that he has taken on paid hits to kill. He claims he was usually contracted by women who needed out of an abusive relationship. So he says that he was hesitant when Ray began talking to him about killing a woman. But really, he just wanted to make sure he could get away with it, which doesn't happen since we're here talking about it. 
As Ray and Van Brett start to discuss the options for Sharika's murder, Van Brett stalks her on and off for months. He knows where she lives, where she goes through the day, but still, he never does the job, even with a few different plans that Ray had put in motion. When Van Brett is picked up at a motel by police following the shooting, he tells them that the first plan was for him to attack Sharika when Ray takes her out to dinner. Ray had told him that he would park behind a dumpster at this certain restaurant and that he would find an excuse to go back inside for something once they leave. This was when Van Brett was supposed to take the hit and beat Sharika while Ray was inside, but he doesn't go through with it. Sharika's diary entries back up this story. She had actually written about a dinner that her and Ray went out to where he parked by a dumpster. She writes about how he left her out in the car for a super long time and it was like annoying. She has no idea that he's leaving her there because he actually wanted her to be murdered or beat up. I wonder why the guy never ended up doing it. Yeah. He kept just... I mean, it sounds like he didn't think that Ray's ideas were, like, very good or, like, that he would get away with it. Or maybe he was. I mean, he claims he was nervous to kill a woman. I don't know how true those claims are. But, yeah, he just kept deciding not to. Van Brett says that on another occasion, Ray obtains a key from Sharika to her home. He hands this over to Van Brett with the plan for him to go in and push Sharika down the stairs. This plan also doesn't pan out, so Ray is growing impatient. He couldn't handle criticism, so the pressure was building as his teammates poked fun at him about Sharika's pregnancy. On the night of the date with Sharika, Ray knew exactly what he was doing. She was eight months pregnant now. They were getting down to the wire, so he sets this plan in motion. And if you haven't figured it out, he did not have a doctor's appointment for his foot that morning. This was all a ruse to get Sharika and him to drive separately to her house. After purchasing the gun, Michael, Stanley, and Van Brett drive around South Charlotte. They had pulled up to a sewer where Van Brett dumped the container of bullets except for the five that he was going to use. And then they stop at a supermarket, they stop at a gas station where Van Brett buys a beer, and while he's inside there, Michael lets Stanley know the severity of what's going on. Stanley is kind of not in the loop. I'm not sure if he thinks they're just buying a gun for funsies or what, but Michael tells him that Ray wants them to kill his girlfriend that he is at the movies with, and Stanley is pissed. Michael tells police that when he tells Stanley this, He is like, you need to take me home. He asks why he was even involved, like involving him in this. Remember, they're best, just best friends that just hang out. So Stanley's like, dude, why am I here? You know, I'd be pissed too. But before Michael can really say anything, Van Brett comes back out to the car and Michael says that he was such a scary man. He didn't dare say anything else or refute the plan. Van Brett testifies to the same thing that Sharika recalled. Ray stopped in the middle of the road, no stop signs, no light, and he blocked Sharika's car from moving. Michael and Van Brett both say that Ray was watching in the rearview mirror before driving off. When Ray goes to trial, he tries to deny that he was ever even there. We kind of talked about this earlier. So for a long time, he had supporters that didn't believe he did this, and he still probably has supporters to this day. They say he wasn't involved and that this was revenge from Van Brett for Ray dropping out of a drug deal. But later on, Ray will admit he was there, but he still says he was not involved. 
He claims now that he was so scared because he knew that Van Brett was dangerous, so he drove off to save his own life. However, he had never called the police. David Rudolph would claim in court that Ray had agreed to fund a drug trafficking situation where Van Brett was having a truckload of marijuana delivered from Atlanta. But on the day of the shooting, Ray backed out. Rudolph had multiple people testify at trial that Ray was a mild-mannered man who was never violent. However, his ex-girlfriend, Candace Smith, testifies for the prosecution that Ray admitted to the attack on Sharika. Ray claimed that the only reason he called Van Brett and Michael following the movie was to see if Van Brett had calmed down. He says that he saw in the rearview mirror who was attacking them, so he just drives off, too scared to call the authorities. He says he never told them the route him and Sharika were taking. They must have been driving around South Charlotte just looking for his vehicle because Michael knew he was going to the movies. So according to him, they just find him. But Michael, Van Brett, and Stanley deny that this is what happened. Michael Kennedy was driving, Stanley Abraham was in the passenger seat, and Van Brett Watkins was in the back seat where he takes the shots at Sharika. So they only had one gun and one shooter. The other two guys were in the front seat. Yeah. And the one of the guys in the front seat didn't really know until right then that they were. But he knew because he asked to be to go home. Yeah. He could have got out. I think, like, Stanley was obviously involved-ish, but it sounds like he didn't know much. I guess he had just met Ray that very day. Like, Michael and Van Brett knew Ray. They had all talked about this for a while, and Stanley had never met him until that very day. So he's kind of just along for the ride. (laughs) And, I mean, he says that he knew nothing about it, and Michael kind of backs that up but they were best friends so I don't know if he's just trying to help him out because he did get him involved I don't know but it sounds like he's the least involved in fact Van Brett claims that once he shot Sharika Michael panics and drives off frantically he says that this is why she lived at first because they didn't confirm that she had died and then he claims that Stanley was laughing as they drove away Although Stanley refutes that, like, absolutely not. He says he was quiet and wishing that he was anywhere else in the world besides that car. Take it with a grain of salt, I guess. Like, he, I don't know. I would say I don't know either of them, and I don't know much about Stanley, but from what I know about Van Brett, I probably trust Stanley more. But nobody from the car called 911 or anything. Yeah. Still makes you accountable. Yeah. If you're there, if you're kind of not doing anything about it, yeah, you're definitely still accountable and still a part of it. So as they drive off, Van Brett is throwing evidence out of the car window. He tries to throw the gun into a creek, but he misses. And when Michael drops him off at his truck, he scrubs himself down with gasoline. He says he did this in case he was pulled over on his way home. So maybe he wanted any gunshot residue off of him. That's the only thing I can think of. But did they even... I don't know. Weird. Did he have a gas can in the back of his truck? Okay. Yeah. He had, like, purposely put a gas can in the back of his truck. So, this was, like, his plan to scrub himself down, I guess. Like, get evidence off of him. He takes off the sweatshirt he was wearing as well, and he discards it. Michael and Stanley both pled guilty to multiple charges, and they served a couple of months in prison for their involvement. They agreed to testify against Ray. 
Van Brett Watkins pleads guilty to second-degree murder, and he was sentenced up to 40 years and five months in prison. He remains incarcerated at Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. Now he is in his 60s, and it's projected for him to be released in 2045. He also agrees to testify against Ray. So there was a deputy jailer that said he heard Van Brett say he attacked Sharika as revenge. The defense wanted to include this testimony like he had been working with the defense. But after the judge heard arguments outside of the jury's presence, David Rudolph decides to drop this request and he's just going to call Van Brett to the stand instead. So I don't know if this jailer was like telling the truth, not telling the truth. Now, while Van Brett Watkins testified, he cried. After describing his emotions once he realized what he had done, he stands up in the witness box and he starts screaming at Ray. He says, are you happy now? He's like really angry at Ray for all of this. He's like not a good dude himself, but he you'll see. He could like keep his cool most of the time through his testimony, but he would often like shout out or have like a super emotional reaction. He t- says, quote, I fired one shot, then four more shots. Bam, bam, bam. She was screaming. She was drowning in her own blood. You could hear a gurgling sound. Van Brett insisted that Ray did pay him to kill her, that he did not do this for revenge. And he tells the jurors that he was just scared of Caruth. He says that if he would kill his own girlfriend and his own child, what would he have done to me? What did they say his revenge was for? So the defense is saying that Ray agreed to fund that marijuana coming in from Atlanta and that on that day, he was like, never mind. So he says like he's has a truck full of marijuana for hundreds of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars. And then he's screwed because Ray pulls out. I personally don't buy it, but this is the defense's take. Van Brett also says that Ray had asked him to discard of all of Sharika's stuff after the attack and because he wanted to make it look like it was a robbery. And when he says, are you happy now? Judge Charles Lamb sent the jury out for a break. He's like, hey, we can't have outbursts like this. And he gives Van a warning to calm down. By the end of his testimony, Van Brett looks at the jury and he says, quote, feel it. You can tell when someone's telling you some shit. I did it all, but I'm still human. And the lawyer's like, "Okay, I'm done, your honor. And then Van Brett says, you're right about that. And then he leaves saying to the jury, God bless you all. But um, he is not an ideal inmate in prison. He has lit another inmate on fire during his time there. He was also involved in the beating and stabbing of a prison worker and many other like infractions in prison. So not trustworthy, like not a good guy. Not a good guy. And I mean, you could blame Ray for doing the plan, but you still pulled the trigger. To me, they're both equally accountable because like he shot her. He did the killing. Like if you can kill someone, you should not be on the streets. And then Ray... Like, he planned it out. And I, I do feel like he owed more loyalty to her. You know, it's her and his kids. So I'm, like, slightly more mad at him. But I think they should both be equally accountable. But on January 2nd, 2001, Ray Carruth receives his verdict. He is acquitted of first-degree murder. Found not guilty on that charge. 
but he is found guilty on conspiracy to commit murder, discharging a firearm into occupied property and attempting to destroy an unborn child. And he is sentenced to 18 to 24 years. So he got less than Van Brett. Like Van Brett's still in prison, Ray is out. Dang. That just doesn't seem right. He's obviously a bad guy, Van Brett, but it just seems to me like Ray, like she wouldn't be dead if it wasn't for Ray. She also wouldn't be dead if Van didn't shoot her, but like he set all of it into motion. And a lot of times you'll see in these cases, like most of the ones Dateline covers, they're like lover types, you know, and they usually, I feel like go hard for the person who planned it. And also not to mention his child. I think that's like one of the biggest like heartbreaking things in this case is like he did this to get rid of that child like you took a life and you ruined a life like that baby would have been born perfectly healthy and lived a perfectly normal life if it wasn't for you I hate him a lot (laughs) so Ray served time in a minimum security prison he had worked as a barber for fellow inmates only earning only one dollar a day And like I said, he has never admitted to this crime. His attorney, David Rudolph, actually says that Ray now agrees with the verdict, saying, quote, I think in some strange way, they just sort of figured it out and sort of compromised to a place that everyone can accept. Like, okay, I get it. I'm responsible for this situation, so I need to pay a price. Which what he means by that, the lawyer says that Ray accepts the sentencing he accepts that he should have spent this time in prison but not because he orchestrated it he says that because of his moral choices of getting involved with the drug stuff and backing out of this drug thing and putting Sharika in danger Ray is released from prison in October of 2018. He had served almost 19 years at the Samson Correctional Institution in Clinton, North Carolina. He only had to serve nine months on parole following his release, and he would move to Pennsylvania with a friend where he works from home, employed by a family member. He was pretty nervous about how life would be once he came out and how the public would react to him. He said, quote, I still have to work. I still have to live. I have to exist out there. And it just seems like there is so much hate and negativity toward me. I'm actually somewhat frightened. Good. That's exactly what I thought. Like, oh, you poor thing. You're frightened. I'm glad. Like, you should live the rest of your life in fear. I hope you do. Because I'm pretty sure Sharika was... 10,000 times more frightened when she's sitting alone in her car after being shot four times. And didn't come back to help save her. Exactly. I have a few quotes from him in this like ending part and it just to me shows that entitlement that I talked about in the first episode which is so frustrating because before his release he starts going public saying that he wants custody of his son. Because Chancellor has to be in custody of someone for the rest of his life. Because he's brain damaged because of Ray. So he wants custody. He says, quote, I should be raising my son. His mother should be raising her son. Miss Adams should not be doing this. And I want that responsibility back. 
I feel like he might not ever have his mother in his life, but he could still have me and I could still make a difference. And I don't think that's anyone's responsibility when I'm still here. <laughs> I could literally smack him. Ray, if you're out there. You lost that right when you conspired to murder his mother. Yeah. Like, it's shocking to me he even thinks he should even see his kid. Like, you think you should see the kid you tried to kill and permanently brain damaged? Let alone take care of him? Do they tell him no? Yeah, so Sharika's mom made a comment about how she will never relinquish custody of Chancellor. And when he's gone, he will be taken care of by someone who loves him and somebody who knows him. And she says, not someone who tried to murder him. So, yes, but she is she is more forgiving than I am, <laughs> which I don't I feel like I'm a forgiving person in general. But it, when it, when it comes to these things. Like, with crime, I am not forgiving. I just don't think that's okay to take someone's life. Like, to me, life is so precious. So, Ray says that he's apologized to Sharika's mom, and all he wants is to truly be forgiven. Which, again, that, like, harsh side of me is like, okay, never give him that then. He wants to be forgiven? Never give it to him. Like, he doesn't deserve it. Now, Sandra... She has a softer heart than me with this. And she says that she has forgiven him, but that he, you know, will not ever get custody of Chancellor. It was um, in that, it was that 15 page letter that he wrote to Sandra where he apologizes. But he also says all these like a-hole things. Like remember he said, it wasn't like or love that brought us together. So he kind of goes back and forth between being like, oh, I'm sorry. And like, thank you for raising Chancellor. And also like saying demeaning things about Sharika and just being like a douche in general. For example, in that letter, he reminds Sandra that she won't be around forever. So even though she won't relinquish custody, she won't be around forever. I'm like, if you think a court system is going to give you custody of the kid you tried to kill, you are crazy. Scott Fowler reports that now, like today in 2023, he Ray is now asking just to see Chancellor instead of seeking custody. Quote, my only desire is for true forgiveness and a genuine opportunity to be a part of my son's life. And out of respect for Miss Adams and her feelings toward me, I have no plans of ever trying to force my way in. I'm going to be patient and give her the space she rightfully deserves. When the time is right, I believe that Miss Adams will eventually extend an invitation for me to have contact with my son. And I will eagerly accept. Which it's like that comment sounds nice but also to me it's just like entitlement like I believe she will like she will let me I don't know he also like when he was talking with Scott Fowler when like because Scott went to his door and knocked on it because he wouldn't respond for um like interviews so he had gone to his door and he did let him in and they talked like he knew who he was because he's been following the case forever and he let him in and he had like a bunch of cereal and he told Scott that it was because while he was in prison he saw a commercial of a father and son and it was a Cheerios commercial and so that really resonated with him because he thought of fathers and sons having all these memories together and so now that he's out he's getting cereal and because it reminds him of like the connection he wants with his son but I just like 
to me, I'm like, no. You tried to kill him. Is that the only kid he has? No. I wonder if he has a relationship. He does. Yeah. So, which for me, if I was, I don't know. It's weird to think like you were such a burden on your parents' life that they tried to kill their next kid. You know? Like, is that not how you would feel? But I guess they talk on the phone every day. Sandra Adams, she has gone on to become a board member of Mothers of Murdered Offspring. She will also consider letting Ray visit Chancellor, and he was about 19 when she said this. Chancellor was 19 when she said this, so I'm not sure if that's ever happened. And then that older son of his is Rolando. Again, Ray has never admitted to orchestrating the murder, and in an email in 2018, he writes to Scott Fowler, and he says... Quote, do you think it's possible for a good person to get him slash herself involved in a situation as heart-wrenchingly horrible as the one I was in? Or is it your belief that such person could only be cut from the worst of molds? And it's like, yeah, I do believe good people can get caught up in bad things. But for me, then once you cross that line, then it's like not redeemable, you know? Because it's like, no, I don't just think they're cut, like they're just bad. I don't think they just come from bad. I think you could be a good person. But once you make that choice to take a life. Yeah, I think that you, like your environment, the way you're raised plays into it. Um, You can be a good person. There, People are good people that just make bad choices. But then there's also just bad people. And so it's like, I don't know. I don't know what I think about you, Ray. I didn't know you before. You didn't sound that nice to me before, but you seemed like you were doing good in your life. Like you seemed like you were living, like you're following your dreams and you were like a successful person. So it's like, I don't know if I think he was a good person that found himself in like a bad situation. For me, I probably lean more towards he was just not a good person and he created the situation for himself. Um, but I also, it's interesting to me because he's, he makes this, these quotes and he, he sounds, you know, nice sometimes. And this quote sounds like he's trying to get people to think, but it's like only focused on him. Like a situation as heart-wrenchingly horrible as the one I was in. Like that you were in or that you created, you know, like it's always all about him. Now he wears this black leather bracelet. And it is also something that just really irritates me. It reads December 15th, 1999 to October 22nd, 2018. And the other side reads never forget. So those dates are the dates he was incarcerated. So you have a bracelet you wear. That is the dates you were in prison for the murder and disabling. Like the murder of your girlfriend and the disabling of your son. And you have the dates of the time you served and never forget and it's because he's saying never forget that like he got his freedom taken away from him mind blown like that just made me silent because I was in shock had to think about that for a minute he sounds like a narcissist yeah seems like it from this perspective of the research I did and like he said about that it was given to him by his mom Well, I thought about it like, so he was incarcerated and it says never forget, like never forget that you were incarcerated, like don't go back, don't 
don't do that do anything dumb to do that again from what i read about it it just and what he said it just seemed like it's because he hated that time like would his mom say never forget when you got your freedom taken away did his family members believe he wasn't involved in it at all I'm sure his mom, like as a mom, you'd probably want to believe that. So when he's telling you for two decades that he wasn't involved, she probably believes him. So I can't blame her there. Like for her, it probably is like her son was wrongfully convicted. So for her, it's probably like, never forget, like you, like you did this, like you served this time, you shouldn't have. So I can't blame her for getting it. But he said that it reminds him to not take his freedom for granted. And then he says, quote, to make the most of the second chance that I have been given and that no matter how bad things get for me out here, it will never be as bad as those 18 years and 11 months. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm glad they were bad for you, but like the worst day of your life, if you weren't involved, should have been when mm, your son was disabled. We probably disagreed on this, but he does sound like he's trying to make amends and be a better person. He does sound like that. I will I will give you that. I just like really dislike him. <laughs> so, and I figure, you know, I mean, there's still people out here there who even support him. So, this is just my personal opinion on him. It's not a loving one, but I do think he's trying to make amends. I guess I don't like that he never is like admitting to it and that it's still like these stories, you know. But yes, he does sound like he's doing better. I hope he doesn't commit any more crimes um, or hurts anybody else. So we'll end on a better note. Chancellor, the little baby, he grew up and he was able to graduate from Vance High School on June 5th didn't say the year in the article and I could figure it out so um sometime within the last few years since 2018 so between 2018 and now he has graduated and he his graduation was held at Charlotte's Bojangles Coliseum and his high school name had changed I guess after his graduation year to Julius L. Chambers High School so that's the high school he graduated from, but at the time he graduated, it was Vance High School, and he was the last class to graduate from there. And he normally used a walker to walk, but he was not going to use that during his graduation. Instead, he would walk across the stage holding onto the arm of his favorite high school teacher. And he graduated when he was 21 years old. And Sandra said, like, she did hope, like, she didn't invite Ray to come out to it. And he could only have four guests anyways. But she says, quote, I'm hoping that someone will tell him about this great milestone that Chancellor is reaching. And as always, I'm still open. Maybe we can have some communication. So she's open to it. Not sure if it's ever happened. And like I said, he could only have four guests. So Sandra had her older brother and his wife come. And then a cousin of hers also came. And this cousin is who Sandra has designated to be Chancellor's future guardian for when she is not around. Sharika's friend says that she would be super happy up there in heaven, singing and dancing and doing cartwheels, just excited that Chancellor was graduating. She says that she'd be looking down, rooting for him and saying, that's my boy right there. Chancellor had spent six years at the high school, so four of those were in an exceptional children's high school program, and then he'd spent two more in a transitional program 
which was meant to teach him different life skills, um, even though he'll never live on his own. Some of his accomplishments, they said, is that he can order food on his own at a restaurant. And they said this class motto every day in his class. I am somebody, I can reach my goals, I show respect, and I use self-control. I have dreams, I choose to lead, nothing can stop me, I will succeed. And it's said that everybody at his school loved him, even when Scott was there, like, interviewing him for his graduation. He said everyone who passed was, like, yelling out to him, fist bumping in, like, excited for him that he was graduating. And like I said earlier, Sandra had done some motivational speaking and she plans to do that in the future. And that speech, maybe I should go to it, is about the power of forgiveness. <laughs> so, um, yeah, again, I might need help in that area when it comes to these things. Sandra and Chancellor have talked together about starting a business called Lee's Lids. So like Chancellor, they must call him Lee, I think, as a nickname. Lee's Lids, and they would sell caps and hats online. Just something for him to do. Police said that to this day, they still marvel at the strength Sharika had that night. She was super clear in her 911 call. She was able to give them directions and tell them where she was and what happened to her. The detective assigned to investigate the shooting said she was one of the bravest women he had ever seen. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Our co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our palette cleanser is given by Charlie Waters, and all our music was created by Jaden Schultz at In Pajamas Music. Find us on social media and leave us a five-star written review if you love the podcast. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters, and today we are going to be talking about alarm clocks. Did you know alarm clocks are very good at waking you up? And we've all probably used one to get up in the morning. Did you ever wonder what people did with before alarm clocks were made? On MaryPoppins.com, it said people would pay someone to knock on their window and wake them up. They were called the knocker-uppers. I'd be terrible at that job because I love to sleep in and I wouldn't even get in at, I wouldn't even get up in bed at time. Bye. Have a great day. If you visit nccadv.org, you're going to find the North Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence. They state that they lead the state's movements to end domestic violence and to enhance work with survivors through collaborations, innovative trainings, prevention, technical assistance, state policy development, and legal advocacy. They don't provide direct services, so if you're looking for a crisis service for domestic violence survivors, you can visit their Get Help page to find the crisis line number for the domestic violence agency in your county. They believe it's critical to serve all domestic violence survivors, and they help survivors regardless of race, age, socioeconomic, or ethnic group, sexual orientation, gender identity, mental and physical abilities, religious and spiritual beliefs, and immigration status. They want to create cultural change, and they work intentionally and actively to create safe spaces for survivors of domestic violence. 
They have a lot of info on their website, so I highly encourage you to visit visit it. That's nccadv.org.